Bentley, you got a second? Let me talk to you. Nash is using his stroke to jerk everybody's chain again. But look, if we stick together, tell him to shove it, and then we'll take that gun right out of his hand. Welcome to Keep It 2000, a joke that turned into a wrestling podcast that has revealed itself to be a psychological experiment. I am Brian Mann, and I am being joined by my fellow test subject, Nate Milton. This is now our fourth session. How are you feeling, Nate? I, I gotta tell you, brother man, I, I am not only feeling the uh, mental effects of WCW Monday Nitro in, in the year 2000, but now... I'm feeling the physical aspects, you know, for the, those listeners with a keen ear, you can you can tell I'm a little bit under the weather. And I'm not sure whether it has to do with the changing seasons out here in Virginia or if uh, the, the booking style of Kevin Nash has finally gotten to me. Well, Nate, I'm certainly uh, sad to hear that. And you mentioned the physical effects, and I got to admit it's it's getting me down as well. And that's when I realized that we're not really doing the scientific method justice we need to have a control. We need to have something to compare ourselves to. If you and I are just going through this, we, we don't really have something to know to really gauge the effects on, which is why we brought in a control subject on this week's episode. He is a former WWE head writer and an MLW podcaster in his own right. Greeny Alex Greenfield is here, and he has watched this episode with us. Um, I just wanted to come on the show this week to publicly tell both of you that I don't really like either of you very much anymore <laughs> um, at all. And also that I think you must both be masochists. Um, in, in fairness, Brian gave me fair warning, but this is going to be a fun show to talk about because it's such a freaking train wreck. And, and the crazy thing is this this probably wasn't even the worst show that we've watched. No, <laughs> up, up not, not at all. <laughs> so I think that – I think, Nate, that's why we got to bring in a third person here because by our standards, this I would probably say this is our – second or third worst episode we've seen so far but we're just seeing what a test subject how they're reacting to it now greeny unlike us i'm gonna go ahead and guess based on how you're feeling that you did not watch wcw at this time what were your wcw viewing habits because i know you you grew up with it but when did you sort of cut bait um well it was sort of it was very much and and this is the irony of watching this period for the first time because i wasn't watching at this point um, I, what brought me back to wrestling after, after a three, four year break, I just sort of dropped out around the time Flair left WCW and didn't come back until, uh, the original NWO, uh, Hall and Nash invasion just happened to be flipping channels. And I was like, wait, why is the WWF champion in fucking WCW? <laughs> like it played to me perfectly. Cause I was, you know, 100% Mark at that point. I mean, not in the sense of believing that you could punch a guy in the face 10 times and it wouldn't hurt. Um, but in the sense of like, I didn't really understand the divide and I, it pulled me in and I was a constant WCW viewer 
um, through sort of the the early part of the Goldberg run, like the Tank Abbott storyline. And then I became a drop-in viewer for a while after that. And I remember – I think the last episode I watched was during the new blood thing and Hogan was wearing this fuzzy vest. Yeah. And that was where I dropped out of WCW forever. So we haven't quite gotten there. So it sounds, yeah, you're kind of becoming a, you've sort of been a spotty viewer at this point. Yeah. It sounds like if the, if the NWO brought you in, it maybe the NWO 2000 is what cast you out at this point. I wasn't like this. So I must've been out for a while before this, because this configuration of the W like, like Jarrett being there. And like, it was all new to me. I had never seen these guys together before. See, I, obviously you never subscribed to WCW magazine. Cause, cause if you did, you would have the inside scoop greeny. <laughs> oh, I, well, I know that there's some sort of hotline. I, I tried to call it this morning and this woman uh, asked me what I was wearing. <laughs> uh, so with that in mind, Greeny, we kind of know where you are at in terms of pro wrestling. Now, one thing we do at the beginning of every episode of this show is that we do a bit of a news of the day segment. Let people know where the world was at on this particular day in history when this Nitro aired. This would have been January 24th of 2000. Uh, touching on our old Review America stomping grounds, the Iowa caucuses were actually held on the same day as this Nitro. I am humbled and I am honored by your outpouring of support. Tonight marks the first election night of the new millennium. Thank you for the biggest victory in the history of the contested caucuses here in Iowa. Wow! I was not of voting age at this point, but both of you were. Where were your minds politically? Uh, now, Nate, you had been a black Republican. Were you? What side of the fence were you at at this point? Who were you supporting? And, and Greeny, we know that you are a staunch progressive. So, were you favoring Bill Bradley at this point over Al Gore? No, uh, I. You forget. Uh, Bill Clinton is the the first. Uh, Ninety two is the first election I voted in. I was very much a Clinton Democrat. I was I was with Gore from from before the race started. Okay, and uh, Nate, were you uh, were you feeling the Forbes momentum? Uh, see this this is this might have been or are you more uh, in, of a mechaniac? I was gonna say <laughs> this might have been in the midst of my black republicanism because I remember being down for Bill Clinton. Uh, you know the man the man came on Arsenio, so I, I yep. was almost obligated to ah. uh, vote for Bill Clinton. Uh, but I wasn't really feeling Gore. Gore to me felt like uh, like you know he was he was the hanger on. He was the Jerry Lewis hanging sitting next to Dean Martin. So I wasn't really feeling Al Gore. So I, George Bush. Seduced me with his compassionate conservatism, so I was a, uh, I was all about me some uh, George W. Bush. Myself, I would have been uh, thirteen at this point, so I remember just kind of liking George W. Bush because he was easier to make fun of, and Al Gore was boring. <laughs> that was pretty much the extent of my political beliefs. I remember we had like this weird chant on my bus. It was like Gore the boar and Bush is mush. Like that's that's <laughs> that's. That was the extent of my political understanding. Clearly, the, the beginning of your political consciousness, right there. Uh, listen, I think uh, Gore the Boar is miles more mature than Lock Her Up, so <laughs> who knows? <laughs> now, moving over to the world of pop culture, Nate, I gotta say, last week uh, you demonstrated like an almost Rain Man-like level <laughs> of pop culture recall when all I said was next Friday, and you were able to list off the entire plot uh, of both this film and the other two in the trilogy. So I want to throw you a curveball uh, this week. All three of us here, we've all lived in Atlanta at points. I want to go back to our southern roots let's talk about the number one country song in america Uh-oh. on january oh, 24th 
in its sixth week at number one was Faith Hill's Breathe. Now, do you guys remember this song? I faintly remember that it existed, but I don't think I would know it if I heard it. I was never a country guy. I, I remember it. Yeah. Uh, but I like I, I think at this time, I was obviously because I'm, li- I'm living in Virginia this time and I've got relatives in Mississippi and Texas. So, you know, you, you hear a country tune every now and then. So, But I want to say this was kind of in the midst of that Shania Twain takeover. Where, yeah. where country was becoming pop and pop was becoming country, up was down, black was white. Well, one too many blacks in country, but you know <laughs> what I'm, you know what I'm saying. <laughs> uh, so yeah, I remember, I remember this song. It, it didn't really do much for me though. I was it was interesting. I listened to it again to sort of prepare for this. Other than an occasional twang in the voice and maybe a slide guitar in the background, you're right. This really was country becoming pop, and it just didn't feel. It doesn't necessarily feel like a country song. Uh, I went right back to it. We mentioned, I mean, I was 13 at this time, so I'm not really choosing the music that's being played in the car, mm-hmm. and I'm living in Alpharetta, Georgia at this point. So my parents would sometimes put this on, uh, though, to, to sort of throw throw you a bone. I also want to mention what the number one R&B song, hip-hop song at the time was, and that was Hot Boys by Missy Elliott. What's your name? Because I'm impressed. Can you treat me good? I won't settle for less. You a hot boy, a rock boy, a fun toy, a toy boy. That was when uh, Missy was like uh, in in her period where she was just showing up on everybody's record. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think she had she, like she showed up on that uh, ladies' night with Little Kim and and all those women. Uh, she showed up uh, on a, on a Janet Jackson song, I think. So I, yeah, I was a big fan of Missy, uh, VA homegirl. Uh, wasn't really a fan of this particular song though. I like the original Hot Boys with uh with with uh, Lil Wayne and BG because that to that to me always sounded like a wrestling theme. Like if that was gonna be like if I if I was gonna be a professional wrestler and had a stable, we would be the Hot Boys and we were gonna come out to the to the Cash Money Hot Boys song, but that uh, never materialized. <laughs> That's the greatest. I have no follow up for that, Brian. Well, I gotta, it should just left to stand on its own. God I, I damn, you can't take it higher, pal. I got to pull a follow-up out of you. What Are you uh, familiar with this song? And also, what music were you listening to on January 24th of 2000? Oh, dude, I, I, I was 27 years old at this point. I just turned 27 years old. We were living in a shitty little apartment on Melrose and listening to tons of, like, fucking the, the same grungy shit we always listen to but tons of like it was ever clear at that point i think their second album had just come out and we really loved it and uh tanya donnelly's solo record and uh there was a great tori amos record like like we, I, we were very much um sort of post grunge but only barely garbage had a bunch of good shit at this point too so uh including uh, they did a, they did a bond theme I think a couple years yep. earlier than this, probably ninety nine. I think was because uh, the, they did uh, "Tomorrow Never Dies." Right. Yeah. So, with that in mind, guys, we've put it off as long as we can. <laughs> Wait, we don't, we're not doing movies, television. Nope. Like, <laughs> no, the, the number one movie is uh, I think no the number one movie at this time because I looked it up was some movie called "Eye of the Beholder," which I didn't re- remember, so I wasn't going to uh, spend was, any time. Uh, an Ashley, it was an Ashley yep. Judd movie. I think during that period she was doing all those Paramount movies, but um, I couldn't remember it. I think she and Ewan McGregor maybe. 
Uh, that is absolutely correct. But unfortunately, this is not Keep It Judd. This is Keep Shit. It 2000. <laughs> so we must talk about Nitro, despite Greeny's wishes, I'm sure. Although, Greeny, would, would you be more upset uh, if we made you watch this episode and never talked about it? Or if we just talked about something else for an hour? Oh, God, man. That's like a uh, – that's still in Charybdis right there, man. I, you're asking me to make – an impossible choice. Like, I feel like I have a lot to say, especially since Ed was on the writing team at this point, so I can fuck with him. Um, but uh, uh, let's talk about it, but we can get back to the movies. Our show starts with a three-bell salute for Bobby Duncombe Jr., who had actually passed away only a few hours before this show, best known for his time with the West Texas Rednecks, the rap is crap. They had just been tag team champions the year before. But did either of you have any other uh, memories of Bobby Duncombe Jr. here uh, starting the show off? It, it was a really sad way to start the show because I forgot mm-hmm. all about this. And then it just popped up on the screen. And for me, Bobby Duncombe was, yeah, he was kind of in that mold of a Barry Wyndham or, or you know, uh I guess a JBL to come later, but I thought he had a good mix of speed and power and in a better company, he probably could have, could have been something or something more than he was. Yeah. I I was just going to say, I have, I, he wasn't really at this point on my radar personally. Like I, I have vague memories of the West Texas route. Like that was a period that I was really zoning out, like the no, the no limit soldiers and them and all of that. So I didn't really uh, know who Duncan was until I came to WWE. And, uh, and as it's pretty well known, like JBL and I were, were pretty close. And I guess they were on the road together a lot around the beginning of John's career. Um, and he just thought the world of the guy and, and always maintained that, uh, Duncan dying so young robbed the business of someone John is very convinced would have been a big star one day. So, uh, it, this was, yeah, I, I was sort of shocked to see this. Like I didn't have the, the connection to the time period at all. Um, so it was, it was, uh, I don't really know his work and I should, I should look it up some because a friend really, uh, valued it very highly. Yeah. So if there's one positive to come out of this episode, guys, uh, go check out some Bobby, uh, Duncan Jr. Now, at this point, the show proper starts. As listeners are, are very well aware uh, up to this point, this company was not very good with money. <laughs> and that was probably no more evident than their use of limos. <laughs> this is so fucking bad. Four episodes into the show, Nate, do you realize that every single episode has had us ranting against limos <laughs> at some point? Whether it's the motorcade or the vanity license plates, this company could not get enough limos. I just realized, Brian, I, I just realized every that? show that we do has a through line, whether, you know, it was Laverne and Shirley on Keep It 100 or brawling around the ring on Review and Impact. The, the through line for Monday Night Show and, and Keep It 2000 are these damn limos. <laughs> and if you think about it, Nate, actually, Goldberg was off TV at this time after nearly slicing his mm. arm off, attacking a limo. Maybe limos are the new star of this promotion. <laughs> So the show opens, and four separate limos enter the Staples Center with NWO license plates. I don't think we've ever witnessed anything like this. Four limousines, black limousines, have arrived together, oh. and there's the commissioner. Kevin Nash, Scott Steiner, and Jeff Jarrett all emerge from their own separate limousines. Maybe that's why the stable has no fucking chemistry. They're not even on the road together. 
Now, the NWO are accompanied by April Hunter, Tylene Buck, Madeja, and future terrible backstage interviewer Paula Paulshuk. <laughs> the three men walk up to the Ford limo, and Big Kev knocks on the window. The window rolls down to reveal an already plastered Scott Hall making an unannounced return. Uh, we have not seen him up to this point. He had been injured. Now, even more important, though, was the mystery woman that yes. he had with him in the car, Lisa Marie Veron, also known as Tara in the WWE. I was not expecting this. Uh, it's kind of been widely accepted that her television debut was at WrestleMania 2000 as one of the Godfather's hoes, but I, it looks like this episode of Nitro might have been her first televised wrestling debut look at look at you sherlock holy shit <laughs> i will i will tweet at her as soon as we're done tweeting as soon as we're done tweeting there you go that shows what i'm doing hey listen uh, if you would because i tweeted at her and she did not respond maybe your history and your clout will get a response i i've got so much clout dude you have no idea <laughs> i've been trying to take some vitamins to clear it up but <laughs> you know it hurts your toe like right behind your big toe so speaking of clout, the NWO comes together and walks towards the arena. Oh. Kevin Nash tells Scott that he's the one making the rules tonight. Everyone needs to be fun around here. Just follow the rules, Nash. <laughs> I'm making the rules, buddy. I'm making hey, the dude. rules. You alluded towards it earlier, Greeny. This NWO doesn't make any sense. <laughs> it, it, you didn't remember it at all. So what was your first thought? This episode's starting. These four guys are wearing a familiar shirt to you, but it's silver. What did you think of the chemistry of these guys when they came together and the illogical decision that apparently these four guys travel in separate cars that just follow <laughs> each other? Like I'm I'm four steps before you and it's because I'm not really familiar with this period. Like strangely, because it's so funny in the context you gave it, these limos just contribute to the overall feeling. So here's the thing. Watching this for me is – yes, I'm watching it for the first time, but I also – uh, I'm a student of the game, so I've heard a lot about this period and a lot of stories about Nash during this period and the sort of masturbatory booking and all of all of the sort of negatives. So going into it, this is sort of the context. And I just kept thinking to myself, when did trolling become <laughs> like – a, a word in common usage because it must have been around this period because what these guys – it feels like their approach to getting uh, what should be heel heat is trolling internet fans who did not yet exist because everything about this was just like – it felt meta even though it wasn't at the time, if that mm. makes any sense. That's a good point because like I, I could see somebody – you know, on, on some message board on, on the CompuServe back in 2000, just I'm really pissed at this this particular use uh, of these characters. Uh, but it, it it speaks to again, you know, you've got the wasting money aspect on on the one hand, but also if you're trying to present these guys as a cohesive unit, it it doesn't work. Uh, I think the best thing to come out of this segment, and you alluded to it, Brian, was the, one of the cameos, and then that was seeing uh Victoria or Tara, whatever you want to call her in the limo because uh there's another cameo later on that that actually might have been yep. my highlight for the show so uh god bless these 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 men and women that that have uh elevated this uh this product because i, I don't know where i would be without uh these little shining moments of, of light to to brighten <laughs> me and lift my spirits in the darkness Oh, we had a lot of very important cameos on this episode. Uh, so the talent is there, but it is being kept at bay. Uh, though Nate did allude towards one thing. 
Greeny, keep in mind, at the end of this episode, we will ask you to name your silver lining. Oh! Oh, I, th- I think I, I think that's going to be easy for me. We were texting uh, uh, back and forth about it before the show. Uh, so in the arena, Pyro shoots off as Tony welcomes us to the gorgeous brand-new Staples Center. This would actually be the first and only time WCW would run the building. Our first match of the evening is an opening round match in the Cruiserweight title tournament. You see, recently crowned champion Oklahoma relinquished the title on Thunder because he exceeded the weight limit, and I guess no one bothered to check that ahead of time. So we had all this bullshit heat on a non-wrestler, and he didn't even put anyone over for the title. Typical of Ed, goddammit. Typical Typical. Ed. Now, for once, I actually found myself begging for a Thunder recap, as I had no idea any of this had happened, and I had to go watch the segment on my own. <laughs> you, get no, you get no extra credit for fucking your S&M dungeon mess. Well, here's the thing that's so weird. This segment where Oklahoma renounces the title was actually on WWE's website. For some reason, they no found shit. it in their interest to isolate this one segment and upload it as its own... <laughs> As, as its own video. <laughs> so, much like last week's Nitro, we are starting hot with cruiserweight action as Kaz Hayashi is already in the ring awaiting his opponent. However, unlike last week's episode, this was very much the WCW version of the division. Hayashi's opponent is Psychosis, being accompanied by Juventud Guerrero, who at this time was doing this, like, pathetic rock impression and calling himself The Juice. The Juice has come back to Las Vegas! Las Vegas?! We're in Los Angeles. Now, what was this supposed to achieve, guys? I I literally have no idea. It was just these weird sort of comparisons where WWE... It doesn't matter what this was supposed to achieve, (laughs) Brian, man. (laughs) Well, at this point, WCW is like a distant second. Why are you going after their top stars? What is this supposed to make you do except look at your watch and realize that in an hour you can switch over to Raw? Mm -hmm. The match starts, and Tanae informs us that this is an eight-man single elimination tournament, and the finals will be held at Super Brawl. The bell rings, and Kaz hits a shoulder block. Psychosis goes to the apron, and Kaz blasts him with the second rope, Uranagi. Hoovy is getting heat on the floor, largely at the expense of this match. Uh, Hoovy's really the only guy the crowd is into. Psychosis sends Kaz to the floor, allowing Hoovy to get some shots, and including a juicy elbow. Back in the ring, Psychosis whips Kaz over the top rope. Psychosis then attempts to dive to the floor, but Kaz catches him with a dropkick to the gut. Back in the ring... Hayashi goes for a superplex, but Psychosis turns it into a super gourd buster. Psychosis uh, gets hit with a spin wheel kick, then ducks another, and is able to roll up Kaz for the pin. Bobby puts over the win by saying, Kung Fu Charlie got it. Kung Fu Charlie got him! With the back kick. What? Tanae then corrects this racist mistake and lets him know that Psychosis is actually the one who won the match. (laughs) (laughs) Like, with the exception of Hoovy... It felt like one of the one of the pre-show tune-up matches they would do at Raw tapings, right? Like it just like the commentators were half like reading their notes for the rest of the show. Like it was embarrassing. Like they laid out and not to build drama. It was uh, it was something else. And I'd forgotten just in terms of commentary. Like, we bitch sometimes about Michael Cole's shilling. Oh, my God, they're so intrusive about the later in this show, later in this show. This this is happening. That's happening. Oh, my God, dude, shut up and pay attention to what's happening in front of you. We're talking shit about the commentary. This isn't going to affect you, Greeny, but, but Nate, I just got to give you a bit of a warning. This is Bobby Heenan's last episode, and starting next week, Mark Madden's here for the rest of our time. Oh, that— 
See, I don't, I don't know. I don't know. Like that's going from the frying pan to the fire. Cause I've got some bones to pick with the brain on this episode. Like this was not brother Heenan's finest work. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, uh, getting back to this match, this, this is kind of, I say this is a bodyguard match because it, it reminds me of that song from the bodyguard, Whitney Houston. Bittersweet memories, Brian, man. That's all I'm taking right here. Uh, because you got three talented individuals, man. Like we know psychosis can go in the ring. Hoovy, despite the stupid gimmick that they, they have him doing, uh, is somebody that can get over. Uh, and then Kaz Hayashi, like, I, my, I actually got excited when I saw Kaz Hayashi, man, cause I forgot about this dude. Like he was one of my favorites back around this time period. And you can still see even in this match, he has some, he has some good moments. Like, uh, he does a suicide dive and does a little twist on it and lands on one foot. Like, come on, Kaz Hayashi. Stop stunting on him, Kaz. Uh, <laughs> but then the match ultimately didn't mean anything because you got the announcers that aren't paying attention. You got the stupid Hoovy playing Dwayne Johnson on the outside, and it just didn't flow as well as the Kidman match that we saw earlier. Uh, so I, I thought you had some great potential here, but it ultimately was wasted because they didn't know how to present these guys in, in the best fashion. At ringside, Bobby, Mikey, and Tony give us a little rundown of what to expect tonight. Behind them, a fan holds a sign saying, Russo equals ratings, a statement <laughs> that ratings would disagree with. That aside... They remind us that in the main event, Sid and Kevin Nash will face each other for the vacant heavyweight title. However, before that can take place, Sid must win a roadblock match against Jeff Jarrett. Yeah, WCW Tag Team Champion, the Mamelukes, with the Disco Inferno, will be defending their tag team belts against the hardcore soldiers, Fit Finley and Brian Knobs. That is here tonight for the World Tag Team title. Plus, we're going to see the total package along with Elizabeth take on Booker T with Midnight, the one-on-one matchup based on last week's Thunder Main event. And then it was promised to be a classic meeting between these two future superstars. Kidman takes on Vampiro one-on-one. That is all here tonight. Greeny, I'm curious, what were just your initial thoughts seeing that these were the matches you had to look forward to tonight? It was weird. I didn't know any of these sort of iterations exist. The thing that stuck out most to me, having worked pretty closely with Fit, is uh, it just why is Fit with Brian Knobs? What mm. what what strange madness is this? Like it just didn't make any sense. It was this weird thing where, like Fit Finley had taken Brian Knobs under his like uh, wing and was like teaching him how to be like a hardcore wrestler. Even though I think Fit is. Maybe three weeks older than Brian Knobs. Yeah, no shit, right? But yeah, they're like the hardcore soldiers. This is the first we're seeing of them uh, as well. That's truly bizarre. So was the idea in this period? Did they focus – like was it an intentional thing that they focused the tag division on Thunder more than Nitro or – was this just weird randomness? <laughs> what had happened was they essentially put all the titles on the NWO, and then uh, Brett got hurt, uh, Scott Hall got hurt, Scott Steiner was hurt, Jeff Jarrett got hurt, and Kevin Nash is Kevin Nash. So <laughs> they had to take the titles off of Hall and Nash. They had a tag tournament in which David Flair and Crowbar won them uh, in the finals, <laughs> and uh, apparently they lost them to the Mamelukes on Thunder, which, uh, Nate, tossing to you, were you... I'm surprised by this because we had never even seen the Mamelukes interact with David Flair and Crowbar at any point up until now. It makes me curious, like, how did the Mamelukes wind up in this situation? Was it uh, 
payback from Nash for helping him out the week before. Uh, you know, it, it, it's curious. Probably that actually that makes the most sense. So, which, which but it would be great if they had told us that. I would say, which means it probably that probably wasn't the reason. It makes too much sense. But uh, yeah, I was curious, but not curious enough to seek out thunder clips on my own, like like some some people I know. Hey, don't stop throwing shade, okay? <laughs> yeah, we didn't watch the show in between. Some of that's on us. And I kind of complain when WWE holds the audience's hand too much. But I do think that there's something worthwhile in reiterating things that happen so they feel important. So far, here we are. We're, we're 10 minutes into the show. We've already had two major title changes, disruptions, and we're, we've not been reminded. The, 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 the announcers just sort of offhanded mention it on commentary. Hmm. So backstage, Terry Funk and Arn Anderson arrive at the building. In the NWO locker room, Kevin Nash informs Jarrett that the doctors have ruled he is unable to compete tonight, but that he has a plan. We then go to break and come right back to the NWO locker room. <laughs> Scott Hall motions to the television and makes fun of the goof on screen. Big Kev says that if he's in his gear, he's going to book him in a hardcore match with Bam Bam Bigelow. So clearly what happened here was that someone in the production truck fucked up, and this pre-tape was supposed to air mm-hmm. after Terry Funk was shown arriving. So instead, we got the outsiders presumably making fun of whoever was in the last commercial and booking them to face Bam Bam Bigelow. This made this, – this made because I was even sitting there and I was like, who were, who were they talking about? Who were they motioning to? And I thought about it. It's clearly we were supposed to see Terry Funk and Arn Anderson arrive, then cut to this, then go to break, then come back and have Kevin Nash tell Jeff Jarrett he can't wrestle. I guess I didn't think deeply enough about it before we got on the phone because I was just like – this made – so little sense to me that I didn't think about it. Unless, of course, now that I think about it, because also in here, Jarrett and Nash are talking to the Harris brothers about their plan. I actually, now I, I think what was probably supposed to happen was they aired the Arn Funk thing at the wrong time. Mm. And we were supposed to go to break, come back, show Terry Funk arrive, and then this segment <laughs> was supposed to air. So someone in the production truck was not airing no. their pre tapes in the proper order. Well, not only that, but well, we, again, we, we will, have. Uh, we had that instance that we were talking about a, a couple weeks ago, Brian, where you've got people watching the TV and you've got an instance of them watching something that shouldn't be on the screen. And it happens again later where we actually see something on the screen. And it's, it's, it's this idea that you want me to buy into where, Hey, you, you're, you're watching TV just like I am, but it shouldn't be that way because now you're on the screen. So shouldn't you be seeing you? They have an internal feed. I guess I, I, they got a closed circuit where they can just watch <laughs> Terry Funk through the whole arena. <laughs> what a shit feed that would be. <laughs> so we go back in the arena where the wall hot off his squash loss to Sid last week, makes his way out mm. already in the ring. Kid Romeo waits to be squashed. <laughs> the way they scream about the wall, like I, would, was he supposed to have been getting shot like with Andre shots or something? Cause he just didn't look wall-like enough to me they didn't yeah they weren't really shooting him well he was still so up until this point he had been the bodyguard for berlin but it now sort of broken out on his own yet he's still wearing the bodyguard suit and tie way too many people on the show wear street clothes and so he's wearing the suit that like doesn't fit him well <laughs> it's it, like it, a it's, sort of, it's a men's warehouse like off the rack oh. it's it's somehow a guy this size his suit is too big for him i don't know how they achieved that <laughs> It's like they just put a tarp over him and added some buttons to it. He looked like he was playing dress-up is what he looked like. (laughs) (laughs) 
So uh, the match starts, and Kid Romeo outpaces the wall, but this quickly leads to big man booking as the wall just toys around with the cruiserweight. Tony then interrupts us with a news flash saying that Commissioner Kevin Nash has put a $15,000 bounty on Funk. The announcers also <laughs> speculate uh, who Jarrett's replacement could be in the roadblock match. Uh, sadly, no one suggests WCW wrestler roadblock. Back in the ring, mm. Romeo tries a sunset flip, but Wall lifts Kid by the throat and hits him with a choke slam for the pin. You'll notice I didn't really talk too much about the the moves in the ring, but neither did the announcers. So <laughs> they so fuck totally it. did not at all. But like they just sat and talked about this. Cra- so commissioners can put bounties on people like that's yep. like this is that's a part of the office. Crazy. <laughs> <laughs> this is the first time we're being able to see the Wall in singles action. Sadly, yes. it will not be the last. Later on in his career, uh, the wall would unfortunately start to be booked in much longer matches. But at this point, this was this was very reminiscent of what they were doing in the early days with Braun Strowman. I actually think this was a pretty good use of the wall, and he looked uh, he looked impressive. And on the positive, because we got a you know glass quarter full when it comes to this program, he's you know this was a good segment that built up a monster. I felt. Yeah, it helped him rehab after that loss to Sid. Uh, so I, I wasn't too mad about this this particular match. And, and it also gave us a chance to see Kid Romeo, who uh, this was a time when wrestling companies were just kind of snapping up any athletic, ambiguously ethnic dude they could find. Whether whether you're talking about Kid Romeo or, or Sonny Siaki or Prince Iakea, we let me let me get a dude that might be Puerto Rican, he might be Samoan. Let me give him the slick back hair and put him in the ring, and then Kid Romeo fit that mold. Kid Romeo, who would <laughs> later be one half of the first WCW Cruiserweight Tag Team Champions, yes. but we will not we will not be getting to that. Uh, now now. Alec, what, what did you think about the wall here? I, I know we were distracted by the commentary, but uh, did you see a good big man fire in this guy? <laughs> no, not at all. Like, <laughs> I, I, I'm totally not with you in, in in any respect as to the positives of this. Like he really did look – he just looked awkward and like he was terrified of himself the entire time to me. Like I didn't buy his act at all. He's essentially it, Lenny from uh, – from, uh... <laughs> From a mice and men, like totally, uh, he should have come out petting a mouse. (laughs) He absolutely. Well, don't give him a fucking rabbit, man. Um, um. Oh Jesus, yeah, yeah. In fact, like, where was his little guy? He would have been. I can see him in a bodyguard role, being somebody's heater. Whose heater was he? Uh, Berlin, who was. was sort of the neo-Nazi uh, rebranding of Alex Wright. Uh, that's fantastic. I didn't see any of that. But Das Wunderkind went full Nazi. I think that's great. Berlin with a Y, <laughs> by the way. Uh, nice. But, but Nate, I think already we're seeing the importance of having a control subject here. Uh, we thought this was positive, and, yes. and Alex is here to shake some sense into us. Yes. I th- I thought it was fucking miserable. I really did. Like it, just, like it was just a string of cliche spots. And God bless the kid for trying, like trying his best. But like mm-hmm. in the speed spot, like just like brr, it was just like it was like a a bad. Uh, it was like a bad big man, little man, like SmackDown versus Raw nineteen ninety eight. The, uh, and the weird thing, so that finish with the sunset flip, usually when a small guy tries to uh, sunset flip a big guy, they like, you know, they'll do like the leap over and grab the legs on the way down and try to have some momentum. That's not what he did. He just like laid down and got between <laughs> Wall's legs and tried to pull him down without tried any force of momentum. to remind him what the spot was. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, we then go backstage and uh, 
It only took us four episodes, Nate, but we finally get to hear a promo from our top babyface as Mean Gene interviews Sid. Now, this really wasn't whisper yell Sid. This was more mixed metaphor followed by laughter Sid. <laughs> he calls himself a monster truck that can crash through the NWO's roadblock, but that he will veto Kevin Nash tonight. Kevin Nash, you are the commissioner, but I am the man that can veto your power. Possibly. Nate, how could anyone think this guy should be your top babyface in the year 2000? I get that, like, he was available, he wasn't under contract, so they got him, but, God, this was, this was not the guy to be building your promotion around, especially when you look at some of the talent you have sitting on the shelf at home. I mean, he was a name, and he, had, he wore a sweet baseball cap, and uh, had some nice hair, and, uh, you know, he had those whisper promos, so, you know... <laughs> That's what they went with. Sid, Sid damn vicious. Sid damn vicious and Kevin damn Nash is your main event. You know what? It, 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 coming in from the outside, it's funny. What it felt like to me, it didn't feel to me like Sid was the real top baby face. Felt like this show was about the beginning of rebuilding of Sting to be the top baby face. And that this, this Sid program was sort of like, uh, uh, like remember, right, right around the beginning of the NWO day, uh, Luger versus Big Show, or, or really? um, the Giant was a main event, and it didn't really feel like a main event. It felt like a placeholder uh, for the real program to come. So that's that's kind of the feel I had of this. Like I had no idea that Sid was in any way legitimately the top babyface. That just seems silly. With WCW, it really was never about a top babyface. I think he's just sort of the top by default because he is currently feuding with Kevin Nash, who is the top of the totem pole. It really is just a totem pole type thing. There's really no, oh, well, we're going to be building up Sting, or we're going to be building up Ric Flair, or we're going to be building up Hogan when he were to, well, Hogan, that, we won't get into that sooner than we have to. <laughs> Sid, by de facto, was only number one because he was feuding with the NWO, or he was feuding with Kevin Nash. He's just the guy who's feuding with the guy who is currently trolling everybody. So by default, I guess he becomes the top babyface, right? Uh, yeah, I mean, you know what it actually reminds me of? I'll go way in the Wayback Machine to a program that was one of the first sort of uh, – I was about the age that you were back in, back in this time period. I was about 13 years old, and there was this really weird program in um, – uh, I guess it was still the NWA at that point um, where Ric Flair – Somehow lost the title to the suddenly pushed Ron Garvin and then won it back. And it was sort of one of the first times I realized, oh, there are stories here and sometimes they don't make sense because there never felt like there was any fucking parody, uh, P-A-I-R, not, not parody, which it borders on. Um, between Ron Garvin and Rick fucking Flair. It didn't feel to me like it didn't feel to me like there was ever any jeopardy on Nash, partly because the entire show is about him measuring his dick, but also because like Sid doesn't seem it seems like a guy coming up from the mid card to be, uh, you know, old school WWF villain, uh, uh, build a build a villain or in this case, build a hero for the bad guy to defeat before you get to the real stuff. Yeah. Now, aside from his promos, though, uh, I just realized, Nate, you, we haven't really talked uh, 
How were you responding to Sid Vicious as the top star at this time? Because I'm going to out myself. I was a 13-year-old. I was accepting anything that this company was, <laughs> uh, was handing my way, and uh, I actually went and uh, saw Sid Vicious live and got his autograph at a car show uh, no. around this time period. So, was he, in fact, a monster truck? He did. He was a monster truck that went through the roadblock of getting an 8x10 signed. Uh, yes. Now – Nate, how were you responding at this point as a more level-headed uh, adult? Uh, see, I was a fan of Sid from from way back. I I, I liked uh, Sid when he was a horseman. I liked Sid when he was a skyscraper. I liked Sid even when he went to uh, that company up north and became Sid Justice for some reason, which doesn't really roll off the tongue. Uh, but by this point, it's like, yeah, Sid should be a guy – very much like, and I hate to keep going back to this analogy because I think this dude's going to start needing to owe me some money because uh, I'm giving him so much love on these shows. But 911 and ECW, like, he's got his spot. He's not going to be the top guy, but he always comes out, gets a big reaction, does his thing, and then he's gone. Uh, that That's where I think Sid should have been at this point in his career, not Jordan, ostensibly, not ostensibly your top guy. And, uh, you know, the... You should be moving towards the future in 2000. You know, this is the, uh, supposed to be the new and improved WCW Nitro, but it felt like we're going back to the, uh, late eighties and the mid nineties with Sid being put in this position. And it, it just didn't work despite, you know, my, my affection for, uh, the, the world's greatest softball player. And, and this is where things start to get a little weird. We start to see the shakeups, uh, happening because we did have that creative sort of transition. Vince Russo always really liked Sid because of his promos. He thought he was like the best promo that he ever saw. <laughs> uh, so take that for what it's worth. And at this point, there was the switch and the change. I think Sid was only supposed to be like a temporary placeholder until they decided to bring – because there had been the the conscious decision to put Flair and Hogan and Sting on the shelf for a period of time. I mean – to be fair, it was supposed to be Goldberg feuding with the NWO. Goldberg gets hurt. Sid kind of gets moved up. So I think Sid was only supposed to be a momentary placeholder. Kevin Sullivan, however, is now heading up the booking committee, and he decides he wants to go ahead and actually build down the road to a Sid Vicious versus Hulk Hogan feud. That's supposed to be the big thing we're building to mm. uh, right now. So that's kind of just a keep that in the back of your mind as we sort of move forward, listeners. Elsewhere in the arena, a stretching Bam Bam Bigelow is approached by Arn Anderson. Arn has a terrible case of phrasing when he says, Nash is using his stroke to jerk everybody's chain, but if we tell him to <laughs> shove it, we can take that gun out of his hand. <laughs> so I guess Arn got his jollies in here trying to bust Bam Bam's chops. Not breaking character, Bam Bam says he'd wrestle his own mother for $15,000. Arn walks away and informs Bam Bam that it's his funeral. Of course, we now go back to the NWO locker room, where Hall and Steiner... Ask the ladies what they want to see on tonight's show. Honestly, I'm surprised they didn't say, Raw, change this fucking channel right now. Uh, instead, the girls demand blood and guts. My girls, what do you want to see? Blood and guts. Blood and guts. Blood and guts. Blood and guts. Let me think. Hey, there's three cats out in the hall looking for an opportunity. What do you think? This gives Hall an idea, and he calls in three power plant guys yes. who are looking for an opportunity. <laughs> These three dudes are one dude I'd never seen before in my entire life, Al Green, and the future king of the indies, Christopher Daniels, with hair, no less. No shit! <laughs> yes. So Scott Hall proves to be a fucking awful talent scout as he chooses Al Green to be the one to go wrestle over Christopher Daniels. Uh, Nate, as soon as I saw this, because these three guys, I paused it, and I was like, this guy looks familiar. Who yep. is this? 
and it took me time to mentally Photoshop the hair off of his face. Uh, how were you feeling when one half of a bad influence was here uh, on Nitro? Uh, see, I, I knew that uh, Daniels was would wind up in WCW eventually. Because uh, we never get to see AJ Styles. He shows up in 2001. Yep, I knew we'd get Daniels and we'd get uh, some Elix Skipper. Uh, so I, it just was a matter of when would he show up. And granted, this wasn't his uh, debut proper, but it was good to see him. You know, and we've got him and we've got Victoria and we've got April Hunter in, in the same scene. So I'm, I'm having all sorts of warm, fuzzy feelings. And it's just, damn, missed, <laughs> missed opportunity because we, we talked about that, that Cruiserweight match earlier uh, with Kaz Hayashi and Psychosis. And granted, Daniels was not the character that he would eventually grow into in, in ROH and TNA. But I'm like, man, we could have had a Daniels Juventud Guerrero feud kicking off on this show. That, that would have been great. But no, nah, we're stuck with the wall and Kid Romeo and, and Terry Funk and Bam Bam Bigelow. Did you, by the way, did you know who that third person was? I had no idea. Like I recognized Al Never Green yet. and I recognized Daniels. And then the third guy I was just like, Oh, must be like somebody's cousin. Uh, so now we go to the ring where three count are standing on their green dots, ready to perform. Evan thanks all the ladies for their fan mail. Music snob Mike Tanay rears his ugly head once again, stating, We're in L.A., the entertainment capital of the world, and this is what we have to offer. I think they should all be slaughtered. <laughs> Mike Tanay, not mincing words at this point. Now, before we get into this match, Alex, were you aware of Three Count as an act, or was this your first time seeing them? Uh, it's funny. When this came on, I, rem- I remembered them, but in the way that I'm like – I have heard about them a lot, and of course Helms has always, uh, uh, and to his credit, given himself shit, and uh, uh, like much shit is given about this act. I can't remember if I actually ever saw them in, back in the day or not, but knowing Helms, like like this was just a blast to see. Like this was Mystery Science Theater three thousand at its best. <laughs> Stand back. There's a hurricane fucking coming through. <laughs> and also, I don't know. It says a lot this guy was uh, Hurricane Helms, but he's going to bury his time in three count, which Nate and I both like. But unfortunately, you did not get to see uh, it in action as Evan calls for the music, but Norman Smiley's music plays instead, and out comes Screamin' Norman in L.A. Dodgers gear. Evan and Shane jump Norman before uh, he's able to get into the ring. The bell rings for a singles match, and Norman and Shannon Moore are having the one-on-one. Smiley is able to land a tilt-a-whirl backbreaker and does the big wiggle uh, while more cells on the ground. Music snob Mike Tanay comes out once again as he <laughs> says, The entire locker room hates three count, revealing himself to be a conformist rather than a trendsetter. <laughs> Moore tries for a roll-up, but Norm instead grabs him by the waist and begins spanking him while doing the big wiggle and then hits an inverted power bomb. Say what you will about the spot. It was over and the crowd popped yeah. bigger than anything else they had on the entire show to this point. No shit. Norm goes to the floor while Helms and Caritas attempt to attack him, but Smiley is able to sidestep and send them crashing into each other. More than hits a very impressive top rope Asahi moonsault. When the two land, though, Norm somehow, like, ends up on top of uh, of more, just they sort of, like, you know, get uh, turned around. And for some reason, the ref attempts to count a pinfall at this point. <laughs> and so Shannon Moore has to kick out, even though this is not a hardcore match. There's no reason for this to be counted, but whatever. Back in the ring, Moore gets a leg drop for a two. Norman is able to fight back and locks on the Norman Conquest chicken wing for the win. 
I was not a fan of this match. Both these guys are, are capable workers, but Shannon Moore wasn't quite what he would end up becoming later on in his career. And th- th- their, their, their timing just felt off the entire match. This is and, – and I'm a big fan of Norman Smiley. Like this just – it just it, – I didn't hate it even. It was just a very disposable match. Yeah, and I think you you know you hit the nail on the head, uh, Brian, when you talk about Shannon Moore not being what he would eventually be. But you've also got Norman Smiley, who everybody can know can realize is a great technical worker, despite this uh, gimmick, wrestling in a baseball uniform and a uh, catcher's chest protector. So like you're you're not you're not gonna get the same type of mobility uh, that you would normally get. But uh, I'm I'm always a fan of of, of uh, Norman, aka Wrestling's Warren Moon. So uh, it, it was nice to see him on this episode. Yeah, it's never bad to see. Now, one thing I wish we could have seen was that after the match, Norman Smiley came in and did the big wiggle to Three Counts Music. Uh. Unfortunately, as we discussed last week, Three Counts Music cannot be played on the WWE Network due to usage rights over Jimmy Hart writing it. Oh, shit. No kidding. That sucks. Speaking of sucks, backstage, Al Green walks (laughs) to the ring with Scott Steiner, Scott Hall, and the NWO women behind him. Somewhere, elsewhere, in the trainer's room, Kevin Nash is talking with the NWO's muscle, the Harris brothers. You know, poor guys. Why didn't they get their own limos? How did they get to the arena? I wish there had been like a, that segment had gone a little bit further and we saw them coming up on like a bicycle built for two as the other guys walk into the arena. Perfect. Nash asks which one of them will face Sid for him. Don volunteers, but Nash doesn't know which is which and has both of them state their names. Hold on, hold on. Let me get this. And you're Don. And you're Rod. Right. Heavy D Don. and Ronnie. Big, big, heavy D. Big heavy, heavy D. I have a, I have a hard time with you guys. Heavy D stepping up to the plate. All right, then. Okay. We In the NWO locker room, Hall, Steiner, and the ladies watch Al Green on the monitor, which, as Nate properly pointed out, was not being shown on television at the moment, so I don't know what feed they are watching to see Al Green in the <laughs> in the, in the the ring. The Al Green so Cam 2000. <laughs> which is worse, the Terry Funk cam or the Al Green cam? Maybe they just signed up for like the exclusive hallway package where we could just see people walking back and forth. <laughs> so in the arena, Al Green uh, is waiting for his opponent. The announcers guess who it could be, despite the fact that Tank Abbott's music is playing. <laughs> but you can't give him too much flack. Uh, WCW music is very forgettable, and no one in the audience recognized it either. However, then <laughs> Tank Abbott does enter, and he gets a good reaction, and... The announcers sell that they know who he is. The bell rings. Al Green holds out much longer than the maestro did last week, but eventually falls to a right hand, and the ref calls for the bell after a ten count. Tank doesn't wait to get his hand raised, instead opting to leave the ring, and he gets in the face of some dude at ringside. What do we got here? Heenan says that he simply must talk to this man and heads over to chat with the mysterious Big Al. We then get a replay of the finish brought to us by Wendy's Cheddar Lover's Bacon Cheeseburger, something I would have much rather had than a Big Al interview segment at this point. (laughs) Back at ringside, Heenan says that he noticed something. Tank's former bodyguard at ringside. What bullshit? He's stealing Tanae's scoop at this point. (laughs) The journalistic standards in this period of wrestling were terrible. It's fake news. Fake news. Fake news. Fake news. So Bobby asks if this mystery man has a past with Tank. Let's just say Tank and I have a real long history. And I'll tell you what, we've rolled a lot of hard miles together. We fought a lot of hard miles together. But this just makes me sick to my stomach. What makes you sick to your stomach? You know, I know he thinks he's out here tearing it up. He ain't nothing but a sellout. You're calling Tank Abbott a sellout? 
Heenan asks for the guy's name, but Big Al just shoos him away. So at this point, when Tank is getting ready, he's getting built up, he should be entering the point of his career where he's facing named stars. Instead, we're digging up some no-name bodyguard with no promo ability, has never wrestled before, and we're going to enter these two into a feud. Especially after last week that we teased a Ming-Tank Abbott feud that just never went anywhere. They didn't face each other on Thunder. It was never followed up on. So here we are. This is what we have to look forward to for a month with Tank Abbott is him feuding with his bodyguard, Big Al Grenick, I think is his last name. Were you aware of who Big – I can't even ask that with a straight face. What did you think <laughs> What did you think when this came on that like – did any part of you give a shit about this guy suddenly being on your television screen? No, and then there's a couple things like uh... – Going back to the Wendy's Cheddar Lovers Bacon Cheeseburger replay. Yes, the, honestly, the best part of this entire segment was that was the mention of that cheeseburger that no longer yes. exists. First, I first I just got hungry immediately from from the suggestion, but then watching the uh, punch, and I had the same feeling with this punch that I did watching uh, Tank fight the Maestro earlier. It it just doesn't work for me as a finish because he he takes no time to set it up. Like, you know, you can give Roman Reigns a lot of crap, but that Superman punch is over for a reason because of the setup and the anticipation and the execution. Tank Abbott has neither of those things. Uh, the other thing during this match, uh, and, and it leads into the interview with Bobby the Brain and, and uh, Big Al, is Bobby trying to get this damn new nickname for Tank Abbott over, calling him the handful. He's, he's a handful, Tony. This, this guy's a handful. He must have said it about seven times during the match. Uh, and, and I had that feeling of like that, that scene from Mean Girls where it's like, uh, stop trying to make fetch happen, Gretchen. It, it's not going to happen. <laughs> like stop trying to make handful happen, Bobby the Brain Heenan. It's, it's not going to catch on with the fans. Uh, but when you talk about Big Al, I had no idea who this guy was. Not then, not now. Like I'm, I'm looking at him like, is that, is that the dude from Twisted Sister in the front row at WCW? <laughs> is Tank ever going to feud with D Snyder? And then, Mike today's like, no, that's Big Al. I'm like, I still don't know who Big Al was. And here's how much, here's how little I cared about Big Al. I didn't even take the time to Google. I looked him up on a pro fight DB to see if like maybe he had worked another gimmick. Maybe, nope, this was it. This is his one and only. And then I searched for him on Facebook, Twitter, could not find anything. I found one person who mentioned in a tweet that this guy had trained him. That's that's the wow. that's the full extent of what happened to this guy. Not only that, but his like uh f- his photo from uh Pro Fight DB is from this show. It's from backstage <laughs> of the show. He's wearing the exact same shirt and jacket. Real quick, Brian, uh, in, in terms of Tank Abbott, because we've we've been pretty tank heavy on on these episodes so far. Yeah, uh, I'm I'm wondering in in the scope of MMA characters, you know, whether you're talking about a. a Brock Lesnar or, you know, even somebody like Goldberg that was inspired by MMA or even in TNA, your King Moe's and, and your Bobby Lashley's and, and your Rampage's. Boo Boo Stewart's? Oh, who could forget Boo Boo Stewart? <laughs> uh, but, but in terms of the, the presentation of a, a legit shoot fighter, if you will, where do you rank Tag Abbott on that scale? Because to me, he's not the worst, but I've, like I, I thought Dan Severin in WWF was was maybe presented more believable than Tank Abbott. Maybe I mean, the, for starters, Dan and Tank, neither of them look like stars. Tank a little bit more because he does have the unique look of like the goatee and stuff. Yeah, the way the, the way he looks is just awful. He's just got these nondescript athletic pants, and I get they're trying to like put him across as like a legit tough guy. But that it, it wasn't doing it here. Like he just looked like a he looked like a fucking slob that could maybe like punch hard. But that was it. 
Uh, like, if you really want to get across the fact that this guy's like legit, I, nothing about this. And, and you mentioned that. I mean, like, you don't have to go all sports entertainment, like the Roman Reigns of like he cocks the fist and everything. But there's, I don't feel like they really gave people an an outlet to really buy into this character. He, th- there's nothing to to sort of latch onto there, and it sort of goes to show you. I mean. Here the guy's coming out at the beginning of the segment with his music, and the announcers don't recognize the music, and neither does the audience. They have nope. to wait to see the guy's fucking face to know that it's Tank App. <laughs> Presentation, god damn it. Right, I mean, that's the thing. Like, there's there's no calm before the storm. There's no, like, in Jurassic Park, you know, you, you hear the T-Rex's footsteps before you actually see him in wwe you hear that the opening guitar riff of that brock lesnar music and you know oh shit you know and people's faces sort of go white there was none of that here it's just this this sort of tubby guy comes out and you're told he's an ass kicker but there is nothing really physically threatening not even physically threatening there's nothing threatening about his presentation at all no and i don't even remember and i, and I might be wrong you know i could be wrong because it's been a while but even when he debuted like i don't remember the big push of this guy you know coming from quote-unquote the real world and then granted they probably couldn't use a lot of the clips because of uh, the ufc but i don't remember them like presenting even doing like vignettes with tanking a gym just you know knocking out tomato cans or things something like that like i, I just don't remember them presenting tank as this big bad ass kicker so I, I was never on board with tank abbott from the beginning well you mentioned presentations and how to properly uh bring out a guy before this segment's even over so we're not going to break. We're not going to commercial. Before we can even put over uh, Big Al in this debut or anything, <laughs> Ernest the Cat Miller's music hits. Does it, though? Does it? It does not hit. You're right. Instead, we got a <laughs> WWE Network dub that has to be, I think it tops DDP for worst replacement that we've seen on this network so far. Uh, Miller originally had a really great James Brown ripoff. Unfortunately, the WWE Network has replaced it with, like, option three on a discount <laughs> Casio. This thing sounds like a fucking flip-back ringtone. Real, real quick, though, real quick, Brian, Brian, because I, I, I need I need Greeny's input on this. Because okay. if you're the WWE and, and you obviously had Ernest coming out to uh, Somebody Call My Mama, the Brodus Clay theme, you know, a few years later, why wouldn't you just... If you're going to go through the trouble of replacing his WCW theme, why not just put in Somebody Call My Mama? Because at least that that is a recognizable song and it fits with what he's doing instead of this ridiculous low-rent MIDI version of a James Brown theme. They It never got to a decision maker who would even think about that. Um, I think when they're when they're getting to these type of dubs of like old nitros and the, like the lower priority shit that just fills out the library, my impression is that there's some little production team in a hole in the studio who are just processing through this stuff, and all they have is a copyright sheet and somebody's attaching whatever music library uh, uh, that they have their arrangement with. They're just slapping things in. It, it was a lack of caring. Some PA mm. has to they're, – they're given, you know, hey, take your three hours after your lunch break and <laughs> find replacements for these 20 WCW theme songs on Jingle Punks or something like that. Uh, see, if, yeah. if, the, if that person was an entrepreneur, he would, uh, like, put his own mix in there. 
Like just bring, you know, like those guys selling you boot, bootleg CDs on the corner. Like every time Ernest Miller came out, it'd be like, DJ Triflin, hottest mix on the street. DJTriflin.net. So, uh, unfortunately, uh, no one took the time and care to really give Ernest Miller a proper uh, entrance theme song. So he comes out, and this is actually the first time he's debuting his new look. Uh, he hasn't been seen on TV for a couple months, and he's wearing a leopard print suit and a slim, shady, Cisco-type bleached buzz cut. <laughs> Tanae calls attention to a sign in the crowd that says, I came to see the cat dance. Tanae instantly calls out this plant, saying... I didn't know the cat was going to be here. How did that fan know? So music snob Tanae has been replaced by message board Tanae. I really want to watch Lost with Mike Tanae is kind of where I'm at. <laughs> Ernest Miller comes out, grabs the mic, and he promises to whoop everybody. He's kind of a baby face, but he turns himself heel. And you know, I'm going to tell you something. Sit down, fat boy. Sit down. If what? you can get your fat ass over, come on up here. I'll start with you tonight, baby. But I'll tell you another thing. I'm going to whoop everybody in this place. Uh, he then promises once again to whip everybody, and then he dances. Uh, and he does some more of his Muhammad Ali impression. Honestly, a completely pointless and unmotivated segment. And this felt like, oh, hey, Ernest is, is back at TV this week. Uh, let's throw him out in front of the crowd. I just I could not justify why this was happening on this show at this point. No. <sighs> I'm glad that uh, Alex is here because I don't think Alex has ever stepped into our world of alternative booking before. Because uh, I, I had I had a, I had a, a premonition, if you will, once I uh, <laughs> saw this match and the, uh, saw this segment and the last match. Uh, because if you really wanted to get this over and appeal to you know maybe an older uh, urban audience, you've got the cat Ernest Miller, who is obviously a, a James Brown uh, pastiche, if you will. Uh, and the gentleman from the last segment, Al Green, why not put them together in a tag team? So you ah, got the cat perfect. and put Al Green in the leisure suit, leisure suit, give him some blue contacts, and you can have the cat and blue-eyed soul Al Green. That's a tag team right there. Done. Well, you also forget that Al Green, uh, earlier in his career on Nitro, played the dog. Ah, that, that, that's another level, the cat and the dog. I, I there like you it. go. I like Look it. at that. <laughs> give me a time machine and Kevin Sullivan's number. <laughs> But uh, no, no disparagement in any kind of personal way, but it, Ernest Miller was one of those characters I only saw very little of and saw nothing in and planted pure, very much among the glaciers and uh, uh, mortises of the world and just thought were silly. Speaking of silly, Scott Hall and Scott Steiner are both laughing at Al Green as he's getting loaded into an ambulance. <laughs> Backstage, Terry Funk is shown walking to the ring, but Bam Bam Bigelow emerges out of nowhere and blindsides him. We hear the bell ring, and the match starts, despite the fact that a referee is not present, so I don't know what would happen if someone scored a fall here in the first couple minutes. Bigelow works over Funk and drags him into the main arena area. Bam Bam then puts a noose around Terry Funk's neck and drags him to the ring. 2000 was a very different time. <laughs> I was just going to say, poor, poor Daniel Bryan. Jesus Christ. <laughs> Daniel Bryan gets fired for a necktie bit. Here he is literally dragging him with a noose for, I want to say, a good 30, 40 seconds. Funk then takes an unprotected chair shot as the announcers joke whether the noose is a wins or not or a double wins or not. <laughs> adding drama. Adding drama. Dragged here by his, by his throat on a noose. And he's facing one of the toughest men ever in Bam Bam Bigelow. Is that a Windsor not? I think it may be a double Windsor, Brian. And... Oh. Even an attempted hanging they're not putting over. No. They finally get in the ring. 
Bam Bam attempts a top rope headbutt, but Funk avoids it. Funk then comes back with a clothesline over the top rope. Then, taking a page from Shannon Moore's playbook, the 55-year-old Terry Funk hits an Asahi moonsault to the floor. They go back in the ring, and Funk just lands chair shot after chair shot on Bam Bam. Funk hits a series of headbutts, uh, but they end up dazing him more than Bigelow. This allows Bam Bam to hit a diving headbutt. Bigelow then goes back to the top, presumably for another one, but the hardcore soldiers of Fit Finley and Brian Knobs come out and attack Bam Bam. Bigelow dives off the top, but Knobs puts a chair between Funk and Bigelow. <laughs> Fit and Knobs then put Funk on top of Bigelow for the pin. Fit and Knobs then run away, and the announcers act as though Terry Funk won this thing on his own. <laughs> it was so it was so weird. It made no fucking sense. Funk then grabs a mic and tells Kevin Nash that he'll have to kill him to get rid of him and that he's bringing reinforcements on Thunder. <laughs> and I've got plans for you. On Thunder, as I am going to have some reinforcements, Nash, Uh for you and the NWO. Who can that be? I got to say, I hated every single second of this. Uh, I can't think of one positive. This was a terrible fucking segment, and then it ends with fucking Funk teasing to bring back more of his old fucking buddies (laughs) as if that got over two weeks ago. Mm. I know nothing of the two weeks ago, but I was just like, Terry was laughing all the way to the bank. Oh, my God. And poor Bam Bam. Like, it was just, it was, these are two of the best brawlers in the history of the business. And did anything in this feel at all real or passionate or like, like they, these guys were cashing paychecks. Like, it was amazing to see the lack of, of two master craftsmen just not giving a fuck. Uh, this just made me sad. It's made me, it's made me yeah. sad, man, because I'm, I'm a fan of both of these guys, you know, Terry Funk and, and Bam Bam Bigelow, uh, who was excellent uh, in his cameo in Major Pain. Go check that out this weekend, folks. <laughs> uh, <laughs> well played. <laughs> but, uh, like, if you're going to use Terry Funk, especially at this stage, you talk about him being 55, why waste him in, in matches like this? You know, he just came off of that big angle with uh you know the old age outlaws and bringing back all the old wwf guys to me terry funk should at this point be kind of like your undertaker maybe maybe a little less prestigious but he should certainly be a special attraction that you only bring out for big matches or big events or or when you really want to get a story across not this random match with bam bam bigelow with uh this bounty stip thrown on at the end and you got the the hardcore soldiers coming out here doing that tom and jerry bullshit putting chairs in, in the way of, of of bam bam coming off the top rope it it didn't flow it didn't feel like the stakes were high it didn't feel like this is a match that i needed to be watching and so uh i had to stop this and then uh pop in uh Halloween Havoc and watch that great cage match with uh Sting and Flair and Mood and Funk and and get my happiness yeah. back. Uh, that's a good thing to go back and get the happiness. I think I'm going to watch that after we get off. <laughs> so at this point, Sid enters the arena for his roadblock match against Don Harris. And as the Harris brothers made their way out, I had to stop and ask myself if I could conceive of a match I would like to see less than fucking Don Harris versus Sid Vicious. <laughs> on commentary, Tony says that tickets go on sale this Saturday in Minneapolis and that Bobby Heenan and Medusa will be there. Bobby says that she will be wearing something revealing. 
Tony reminds Bobby that it will be 67 degrees below zero in Minnesota next week. <laughs> but Bobby promises that she will only be wearing earmuffs. Plus, you can meet Bobby the Brain Hayden and Medusa. Do you know about this, Bobby? Yes, and Medusa told me she's going to wear something revealing. Now, what could that mean? I mean, it's 67 below there right now. What could she wear? Earmuffs? That's all? It might be just a t-shirt at 67 below. That wouldn't be enough. So Heenan uh, presumably wants this woman to freeze to death. Yeah. Uh, Tanae and Tony try to get Bobby's focus back on the match, but he just keeps muttering the word muff to himself over and over and over again. <laughs> again, raising the stakes. Sid attacks Don on the floor before he can even take his jacket off. They brawl around the floor. Uh, the current stakeholders of TNA doing their future employers proud here. Uh, the two work their way back into the ring, and the Harris brothers perform twin magic while Sid's back is turned. However, Sid is in the ring, uh, whichever Harris is in the ring, takes his tie off and chokes Sid. Ron clotheslines Sid over the top, and the Harris brothers are working over him. I, I was starting to get confused. I couldn't tell if these guys were switching here yet. I, I, I gotta be honest, I lost track <laughs> of which Harris was in the ring at what time. Whichever Harris is in the ring applies a chin lock that I think lasted the entire second hour of this show. <laughs> it was really – it was – well, he was blown up. Yeah. Sid then does like his version of hulking up, <laughs> and, and then he hits a choke slam onto one of the Harrises. This then allows the Harrises to do twin magic once again. The fresh Harris is then hit with a powerbomb for the pin. The announcers note that it was the wrong guy that got pinned, but it doesn't matter. slam one. At this point, we go to break. To pull the curtain back, though, a little bit, to make matters worse, during the break, Sid Vicious was counted out and declared the loser of the match. However, they never told the audience at home this because it was shot for an angle on Thunder. So, all this does is confuse the live crowd that thinks Sid lost while the audience at home thinks that he won. Oh, good. <sighs> if, 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 if you thought there's any way to make this segment more confusing they did it during the commercial break wow that's something not very good of all the people to replace fucking uh jeff jarrett you, i would i honestly would have been okay if this had been both harrises and maybe we're doing a, a a handicap but it's clear no one in this match showed up to do any work in tonight it was i mean it was just awful I mean, there. I mean, there's really there's no criticism you can give. There's no lens you can view it through. It was just it was terrible top to bottom. And hearing about the thunder implications just retroactively. Can you do negative stars? <laughs> like it was just it was not good. No shade on Heavy D and and whatever the hell Ron's nickname was on this episode. Uh, I think it was Big Ron. It was Big Ron. Heavy, Heavy D, and D Big Ron because that's creative. Uh, I expected something a little more German from them. Yeah. <laughs> I was going to say, man, like this, this was not twin magic. This was ten, twin tragic. Uh, <laughs> I, I, I wasn't feeling this, man. I think, again, when you have matches that don't deliver, at least give me a good story. And I don't think that they gave me a good story here because th there was no way that I was buying that Sid was going to lose this match. You know, even, even if it was a handicap match. There's no way I'm buying Sid is going to lose this match uh, because, A, I know how wrestling works as a viewer, but, B, I've got the handy-dandy buttons on the WWE Network that tells me what's coming up. Uh, which, uh, side note, 
when a listener uh, hit me up over the weekend and they were like, you can tell how crazy a show is with Nitro based on the number of dots you see in the final hour. If they're spread out, it's it's a it's an okay show. But if you got like sixteen dots, like we had on some of those Russo shows, uh, buckle up because it's going to be a crazy ride. Kidman enters the arena accompanied by real life girlfriend Tori Wilson. Tori had actually been off TV since November, but she returned on the previous Thunder. Vampiro's uh, makes his way out as he is the opponent, but he uh, he trips over the ropes on his way out. The ref rings the bell as Kidman gives Tori a kiss on the cheek. Vampiro gets offense early, but Kidman catches Vamp with a head scissors. Vamp blocks Kidman in the corner and hits a powerbomb. So, this, so far the show isn't giving us much uh, hope, but I'm being reminded that they actually still had some pretty good talent at this time. You have Kidman, you have Vampiro, and yeah, the Radicals just left a week ago. All's not lost. There is some talent to build for the future. Just as I'm thinking this, the camera cuts to ringside to showcase some of the famous... Faces in attendance, and there in the front row, David Arquette and Courtney Cox are taking in this nitro. It was just like horror, horrific foreshadowing, right? Like, just fuck. And how about this? David Arquette and Courtney Cox have joined us here. It's our buddies from Ready to Rumble. Back in the ring, Vamp hits a side suplex, Kidman ducks a spin wheel kick, and clotheslines Vampiro to the floor. Kidman dives onto Vampiro off the top rope. Bobby keeps whispering to himself about how beautiful Tori Wilson is. The other two guys are actually trying to call the match, but that's just what Bobby keeps going back to. Kidman attempts his trademark bulldog, but Vampiro turns it into a rock bottom. Vamp lands a Liger bomb, but Kidman manages to get the shoulder up. Vamp gets Vamp then puts Kidman onto his shoulders and starts climbing the top it starts climbing to the top turnbuckle, but Kidman reverses it into a Frankensteiner and gets the pin. We just saw between Vampiro and Kidman. This was easily the best match on the show. For sure. Uh, I just wish that we had actually been given the slightest bit of backstory or promo time as to why these guys were having a match. It, you think about all the NWO shit. You think about that Ernest Miller thing. You think about everything with Bam Bam. Could we not have just given an interview ahead of time with these two stating, hey, I, I respect I respect the other guy, or we're going to showcase that we're the best two in, in the company. You don't even have to do like an angle, just something any bit of promo to make me care about either guy before this match while it was very good was just thrown out cold. And, and, uh, and the crowd responded as such. Um, it, yeah. Uh, a start, sometimes a star is taken away by not understanding what's going on. And this was one of those cases because they really went out there and worked hard and did a really cool match, but I didn't know anything about these guys. And mm. again, on the commentary, like the, the fucking Heenan comedy, big air quotes around comedy uh, bits were super distracting. Yeah, I, I, man, this was the episode where, you know, I, obviously I have all the love and respect in the world for the brain, but I was not feeling this episode, whether it was the uh, sexual jokes that didn't land or the uh, the uh, Tank Abbott nicknames that didn't work or that ridiculous interview with Big Al. This wasn't Bobby's finest uh, show. But in terms of Kidman and Vampiro, I, I dug the match. I thought, had this been handled a little bit better, you could have the start of, you know, this really cool feud uh, that, and, and this is going to seem a little a little uh, exaggerated, but 
let, let, let's, let's kind of make the parallel. Like when I was a kid in the early nineties watching Bret Hart and Mr. Perfect kind of come up at the same time. And they had those great series of matches back and forth. You're like, wow, these guys are young and they're, they're, they're fresh and they're, this, this could be a rivalry for the ages. You could have started something like that with these two guys because they had a unique look. They had a unique move set. They, they certainly tapped into, uh, the younger audience at the time, especially Vampiro. And I, I think, you know, you could have built something off of these two guys. The, the big thing that I missed and, and maybe this is where uh, not watching Thunder is a hindrance, but still, I will not, uh, I will not watch Thunder. Uh, I will not watch it here or there. I will not watch it anywhere. Uh, was what happened to the filthy animals, Brian Man? Because they, they kept mentioning during this match that Kidman's on his own now. He doesn't have the filthy animals to back him up. I don't know. I think that might have actually, cause I don't think Kidman was in the filthy animals the week before either. So I don't know what happened. I did not care enough to look into, uh, <laughs> to look into that. <laughs> we then go backstage where Arn Anderson is talking on the phone next to an ailing Terry Funk. Arn calls the person on the other end of the line champ and tells him to put his pants on and that they need him at Thunder. Well, put your pants back on, will you? Listen, got a proposition for you. This time around, I see some other guys eat some of that desert dust. Can you be in Vegas for Thunder? <laughs> I knew I could count on you, champ. Yeah, you'll be there? All right, man, I'm here with Funk. I'll let him know. See you then, yeah. This was pretty much their way of telling you Ric Flair is coming back without actually promoting it, so you might want to actually, I don't know, tune into their shitty B show. What, what was their aversion to telling you Ric Flair was going to be on TV on Thursday? No, I, I mean, I thought I thought it was a cute, subtle hand. My question for you guys was going to be, does he actually show up? or it's that's, that, Yeah, that, that was my question. Like, did, did, did Flair actually work that thunder? Spoiler, Flair literally shows up in the last shot of the episode. <laughs> wow. <laughs> he shows up on stage and, and, and applauds uh, Sid Vicious. So that's something to look forward to, Nate. I guess I'll ask you, did this get you excited knowing that Ric Flair is coming back to TV? He, we will get his actual first promo back in a week. It did, man. Everything's starting to come together. We got Ric Flair. We, we're going to talk about Sting a little bit later, uh, and not just in a credit card form. Uh, and, and so my, my hopes, my, my, my spirit was starting to be lifted. And, and I do uh, give credit to Arn on this promo, though, because he threw in some, uh, some great little Easter egg. If, if you actually watched yep. Nitro at the time when he was like, uh, and this time they'll be the ones left in the desert in Las Vegas. I'm like, oh, I remember that angle when Ric Flair was buried in the desert. That's true. Ric Flair had not been seen on television since he was buried in the desert in Las Vegas by the filthy animals. Uh, so at least there's actually some continuity. I guess he's just been hanging out in that hole in the ground waiting for WCW to come back into town. So he will be on Thunder in Vegas that week. Oh, imagine if that's how the, if that's how Thunder opened. Like we just get this panoramic shot of the desert, and this this is like something straight out of a greening script. And and, and I know, Flair, I know, and the hand the, the hand, hand pops, pops out, out of the dirt. Yeah. Oh man, the hand pops up, and we hear like woo. That'd be great. Perfect. In the trainer's room, Kevin Nash is getting his back rubbed by April Hunter, can you tell he's writing this show, as Jeff Jarrett tells him he's got to lace up his boots tonight after all. Well, you know what? No matter how you... Uh, oh, yeah, look we got to take this thing serious, man. You I am taking it seriously, and no matter how you look at it, hey, we got it in the bag, man. It's all part of the plan. You sure? Backstage, Mean Gene is interviewing Vampiro, or at least he's attempting to. There's no audio coming through, so we just cut back to the arena, and the total package makes his entrance. 
As Luger walks to the ring, the announcers attempt to decipher who Arn was talking to backstage. The announcers all conclude that they know exactly who it is, but that the fans at home will have to decide for themselves. You can, fans, uh, in your own mind, wonder and... Uh, I mean, I'm drawing my own conclusions as to who it just might be that'll be at Thunder in Las Vegas. Burn? No. Shut in the dark. I'm going to be honest with you, I, I think I know. Why no? You never have been before. Yeah, really. Yeah, don't change things here in midstream. Okay. Okay, pal. Okay, brain and little brain. Come on, what? buddy. Mr. Personality. Who do you think it is? Well, I, I'd rather not say. I mean, just draw your own conclusions here. Ric Flair hasn't been on TV for three months, but this company is too fucking stupid to actually promote his return. Elizabeth gets on the mic and refers to Luger as the finest physical specimen in sports entertainment, while the crowd chants, We Want Sting, another return that was alluded to but never actually promoted. Luger says that each day Sting's cowardly butt uh, does not come out here, he grows stronger. Lex then brags about the fact that he returned from injury bigger than ever, and he has 0% body fat. I came off surgery bigger, faster, better than any athlete on the planet Earth. My record is unblemished for 14 years. We got bodybuilders up back to get in shape for one show a year. We got wrestlers that look good and then they look bad. You never hear from them again for 14 years. I am six foot four, 275 with a 4% body fat. Unheard of in modern day physiology. This is about as close to a Scott Putsky acceptance speech as we're going to get from Lex Luger. Yeah, kidding, right? (laughs) He might as well have told you that he was on steroids (laughs) during this promo. Uh, Package says that nobody can compare to him, including the immortal Hulk Hogan, teasing a feud that I'm really upset materializes in the year 2000. Mm. The Harlem Heat music uh, hits, and Booker T makes his way out. Lex attacks early and gets the heat on Booker. Booker lands a rock bottom for a two. On commentary, Heenan flat-out demands that Tony says who he thinks is coming to Thunder. Tony responds with, Listen, we're all thinking the same thing. We all know who it is, but we're not going to say. (laughs) Why? (laughs) We all know who we think it is, and we're all thinking the same. Then say it out loud. I'm going to let the fans, fans, think about it. Think about who we haven't seen in a while or who it could be. Booker lays out package with an axe kick. Booker goes for a cover, but Liz distracts the ref. This is when Midnight runs down and chases Liz away. In the ring, Stevie Ray has appeared, and he distracts the ref. This allows Big T to hit Booker with a slapjack undetected. I gotta ask you, Greeny, who do you think Big T was? (laughs) Uh, I have no idea. So you don't know who was playing Big T? No, I have absolutely no idea. (laughs) What would you say if I told you that was Ahmed Johnson? No fucking way. Yep, that was Ahmed Johnson playing a completely different character and having put on about 75 pounds since we last saw him. No fucking way. Didn't have any idea. Jesus mm. Christ. He got – wow. That's <laughs> that's quite a transformation. <laughs> He's living the big part of the gimmick. What can you say? I guess so, right? Jesus Christ. The total package then puts Booker in the torture rack for the win. Sting's music then plays, and a shadowy figure, who is clearly just some random dude in a wig and not Steve Borden, (laughs) is at the top of the ramp pointing a baseball bat. The lights go out, and when they come back on, the mystery man is gone. So while this certainly wasn't last week's credit card commercial, at least we're getting a hint 
of of Sting, uh, and, and I can't see Nate saying too many negative things about a segment containing Big T and Sting's theme music. Oh, what? Imp- look, I, I, I'm. Th- this is going to be uh, a moment we will talk about at the end of the show. What I really liked here, and and, and look, everybody knows Booker was my champion, and uh, uh, I'm a, I'm a, as big a Booker T fan as you're ever going to get. Like. Luger was effectively I don't know whether it was the gas or the or the miles but Luger was effectively immobile here and what I thought was really impressive separate and apart from all of the Zabada that just got thrown into this match for no reason Booker really worked hard to give this guy a good match and um and and it might have been Sisyphus pushing a, pushing a rock up a hill um but but Booker always impressed me I mean he uh, he was always better than he was given. Yeah, I really liked uh, Booker in this match for as 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 little of it of him as we got. You know, I thought the uh, some of the kicks looked really really crisp, and and uh, it, it was actually for this era of Lex Luger, the the total package era. Uh, this is actually probably one of his better outings. Uh, but when you talk about the the interference with Harlem Heat and, and Midnight and and all that stuff that we talked about ad nauseum here, like that. I didn't need that. And then maybe the most egregious part of this was uh, Sting showing up because I had a, a flashback to uh, – was it was it Lloyd Benson that, that hit Dan Quayle with the ether? Yeah. I'm, I'm, sitting, I'm sitting here looking at, at what is supposedly Steve Borden, but it's probably like Steve Rosenberg from Catering uh, dressed up <laughs> like Sting. I'm like, come on, man. I know Sting. I was a friend of Sting's, and you, sir, whoever you are in this smoke, you are no Sting. Uh, it's like, come on, man, why, why, why are you trying to play games? And there was people backstage who had long hair. And this guy was clearly wearing. It's remember they did it on Raw, where they had like the four different Stings yeah. in the crowd, and like it was clearly just uh, 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 fucking uh, Tyler Breeze with face paint on. <laughs> so we then go backstage, where Gene gives his interview with Vampiro another try. Gene says that the WWF may have sabotaged his microphone. Yeah, Gene, that's the linchpin that's going to cause this whole house of cards to come tumbling down. This botched Vampiro promo in the back. Brian, it's a game of Jenga. (laughs) (laughs) So Vamp says that this is the greatest company in the world and that it's humbling to be here. Uh, Clearly not a shoot promo. Uh, Vampiro states his respect for Kidman and asks for a rematch on Thunder. Uh, They would do that rematch and uh, Vampiro would get his win back. In the arena, David Flair, Crowbar, and Daphne come to the announce position ahead of the tag team title match. The three of them force the announcers off commentary. So for the next four minutes, all we got was David, Daphne, and Crowbar's crazed laughter instead of play-by-play commentary. The Hardcore Soldiers, Fit Finley, and Hardcore Champion, Brian Nobbs, make their way out. The Mamalukes then make their way out with Disco Inferno, but Daphne just keeps calling them the Marmadukes. Crowbar then goes into an announcer gimmick, and I gotta say, he's actually better than Stevie Ray. Crowbar flat out says that he's trying to do his job, but Daphne and David are just laughing on their mics. Go back up to action in the ring. Referee. No, they're meatheads. They are. They suck. I'm trying to do my job here. To make matters even more confusing, standards and practices then come out with with, uh, Miss Hancock. Standards and practices suddenly then disappear, but Miss Hancock remains at ringside. By this point, the match has started, and it's been going on for a few minutes, but there's nothing worth mentioning. 
Finley's the only one in this group who can actually work, and for whatever reason, they keep him on the apron the entire match. David Flair then begins dancing on the announce table. This causes Miss Hancock, who was actually dating David in real life at the time, to smile. In the ring, Finley works over Johnny the Bull. Miss Hancock then walks away from ringside, and Daphne and David follow her. Crowbar's the only one on commentary at this point, and he attempts to try to call the match. Uh, Nobbs hits a second rope splash on Johnny the Bull. In the aisle, we then suddenly cut to Daphne and David making out. Miss Hancock's no longer around. Vito accidentally hits Disco on the apron, which allows Finley to roll him up for a two. Brian Nobbs grabs a chair, brings it in, accidentally hits Finley with it, and this allows Finley to land an implant DDT, or this allows Vito to hit an implant DDT on Finley for the pin. A miscue, a faux pas, and there it is, the Paisan plant. His head's a crimson mask. Crimson mask. Crimson mask. I sped through that as fast as I could because it was fucking terrible. You couldn't follow anything that was going on. And as bad as the announcers were in the other segments, at least we had them to hold our hands somewhat. There was nothing here. This was just a complete and total mess. It was very clear that I don't even I, I can't even imagine. I literally have a hard time imagining a producer sitting down with the seven, eight, nine people involved in this segment and walking them through what it was supposed to be. This felt like a first messy dress rehearsal. This was a total this was easily the worst segment we've had so far on this show, Nate. Yeah, this this was this was terrible. Like outside of Crowbar doing his commentary and uh uh Lenny Lane getting a check for this week, uh which is always a good thing. Always good to put money in Lenny Lane's pocket. Uh there there was nothing to this, man. It was uh bad wrestling. It was bad uh commentary from uh Daphne and David. Uh and it was like it it was so bad it actually got me wishing that, that Bobby the Brain Heenan would show back up this week. Uh which which tells you how irritating they were. Uh and then, you know, the match. It it, it wasn't good. Uh I don't know why we had, you know, just thinking back to the first show we did on Keep It Two Thousand. Why the hell did we go through all the trouble of building up the the new tag team champions in that tag tournament only to switch it two weeks later? Yeah, there was I mean I, I, I don't know what to say. I mean, we did have a switch of creative direction backstage. Maybe that had something to do with it. Uh, but, Greeny, I know you and I were talking uh, before we went on the air about this segment. Um, could you, as a former professional in the business, find any way to salvage this? What, what do you think they were attempting to execute here that they clearly were just miles away from? Uh, I mean, I feel like there must have been like this is something i'm definitely gonna ask ed about because i'm really interested to know this is one of the worst real quick segments. i'll let you know i asked ed about this time period and he flat out told me he does not remember any of it <laughs> so ah. you can try fair enough <laughs> shit because this man like this is one of the worst executed just in terms of like you can imagine the director in the truck throwing throwing the run sheet in the air and just saying i don't fucking know take x take Take three, you know, like, what the fuck do you do? Because there was so much going on. There was no sense of direction. I didn't understand it at all. The fucking, like, I know Daphne's scream was a way to get heat by being so annoying. Those two, like, this was painful to watch to the point that you had to mute it. So I don't even know about uh, Crowbar's attempts at fucking comedy because it or commentary because, dude, it was just... An absolute mess. 
I feel like maybe they were trying for the feel that you got when Nexus first invaded and everybody laid out and it was uh, it was just to demonstrate the chaos. But I didn't have the investment in in the characters here to to even understand at all what was going on. Um, the only credit I can give is to Disco, who is trying the classic manager thing of telling the story with his face and his physicality outside uh, to try and keep us abreast of the match. But it was, you know, pissing in a salted sea, man. Like there was no <laughs> there was no saving this. It was absolutely terrible. Backstage, Nash and Jarrett are shown walking to the ring. Back in the arena, the regular commentators have reclaimed their position at the booth. Nash makes his way out, and he grabs a fan sign that says, Hall fears O'Doul's. Nash gets on the mic and says that as commissioner, he has the power to change match stipulations. Nash says that both he and Sid use the powerbomb, and it's just so gosh darn dangerous that he's decided to outlaw the move tonight. This is a nice way of saying Nash didn't want to take a powerbomb, nor was he willing to attempt one in the match. Nash declares that Sid will lose if he uses the powerbomb tonight and that Nash would then get the belt instead. Nash assures us that he's already sent the NWO to Vegas so they could get ready for one humdinger of a championship party. Sid is then shown yelling and walking to the ring. Now it is time for our main event. Back from break, Sid makes... Hold on, hold on, Brian, real quick. I think we we, we have a milestone here on Keep It 2000. What's that? This is the first show that we've made it through entirely without... uh, any heat being garnered by uh, disparaging the hometown team. It's true. He did He did say everyone in the crowd was unemployed, but <laughs> you're true. They never said anything about, uh, about the Lakers or anything at that point. So back in the ring, Nash is already waiting for Sid. On commentary, Tanay once again asks Tony who he thinks Arn is talking about. <laughs> Tanay flat out says, finally says, fine, uh, uh, Ric Flair. I think it's Ric Flair. <laughs> the bell rings. And Sid hits the shittiest scoop slam I've ever seen. I didn't know he could fuck up a, a scoop slam, but they somehow did with the first move here. Nash refuses to go up for it, then lands with a thud and doesn't sell anything. Sid lands a leg drop, and honestly, I thought they were just going to call this thing at 30 seconds. Instead, Nash kicks out. Sid clotheslines Nash over the top, so Nash takes plenty of time walking around the ring before he gets back in. Well, I mean, he was wind- he was winded from the first from the sort of cruiserweight like action at the beginning. <laughs> now, to buy himself a little bit more time to catch his breath, Big Kev then asks for a test of strength. Holy fuck! This guy's only thirty nine, and he's working like he's fifty nine. Now, of course, <laughs> Nash lands a knee to the gut instead of locking up with Sid. These two trade punches and clotheslines in the corner. It's clear no one's taking a bump. No one's leaving their feet. <laughs> Nobody's doing shit. Oh, my God. Nash then puts on a fucking sleeper hold. Just <laughs> as I saw a fan in the crowd held up a sign that simply said, uh. Nash gets out of the sleeper by sending Nash into the corner. And wouldn't you know it, referee Charles Robinson gets caught between them and takes, and takes a bump. Sid is then able to hit a running clothesline and a big boot. Sid covers Nash, but the ref is down. Sid mm. signals for a choke slam and outruns Jarrett with the guitar. Sid knocks Jeff out of the ring, grabs the guitar, and hits Nash over the head with it. The ref then comes to and notices the remains of the guitar. So the smart man that he is, Sid falls to one knee and pretends that he was the one that got hit with it. Sid, feigning his injury, crawls over to Nash, covers him, and wins his first WCW title. Bobby the Heenan says that Sid outsmarted the industry in doing this. I don't know if it was that big of a coup that he occurred. <laughs> what a 
great move by Sid. He outsmarted the NWO. He outsmarted WCW. He outsmarted my industry, guys. Confetti is released from the ceiling as Sid celebrates, and we fade to black. For the first time in a couple of weeks, we have a WCW champion. It is Sid Vicious. Mm. Now, real quick, I just want to get both you guys' thoughts on this. Uh, Greeny, you alluded to this not being that great. Do you think this was worse than the Harris Brothers match from earlier? Uh, no, no. It was not as bad as the Harris Brothers match. It was – you know what it reminds me of is uh, the fucking Undertaker um, – the Undertaker-Sid match from uh, – I don't know whether it was WrestleMania 13, maybe WrestleMania 12, something like that. It was like these two guys were under fucking water. Like it was so mm-hmm. slow motion as to be like, imagine for a moment, Ricochet and Osprey. Oh, Think no. to yourself, what would the equal and opposite in Newtonian physics? What is the equal <laughs> and opposite reaction to that match? It is this. It is Sid and Kevin Nash on Raw Ugh. refusing to do shit. It was just it was it was it was underwater ballet. Yeah, and for a guy like Kevin Nash who obviously doesn't care about working, uh if he's the guy calling the shots, he's not going to make himself do any more than he has to. And this this was literally when he took that fucking scoop slam and he like doesn't sell, he like sort of like flinches and puts like his arms like on his chest. <laughs> It was it was very clear that this guy was not out here. To, I think he maybe took a couple more bumps after this. But when you're supposed to be the leader at this point, and this is the example you go out and you show, uh, I personally do think it was worse than the Harris Brothers match. But, Nate, what do you think? I thought it was better just because uh, we didn't have uh, any alleged uh, racists in the match. Oh, that that's true. Uh, but, but here's my question, though, Brian, because they made such a point to almost do, like, the Eddie Guerrero spot. Uh, where where Sid feigned that he that he was the one that was hit with the guitar, even though all the guitar shards were over Kevin Nash, and then we get you know sneaky Sid doing his little belly crawl over to to pin Kevin Nash, and and the announcers are putting this over as this is a great master plan. Where where was the plan in in this? Like what what was the objective for Sid? Like what I, I don't get where where he was a genius and where he fooled the industry with this plan, Brian Man. And like you couldn't even have him then, like get Nash up for a for a choke slam. At least give him like an offensive move, not just a weapon shot for your babyface to win. Uh, but yeah, not a very good episode. But as we do each week, we are tasked with finding a silver lining. Throwing it to our control subject first. What was your silver lining of this episode? What was the one thing that you could take away as a unqualified positive? Uh. The evolution of Booker into being the performer he would become not long after this, um, I thought that what – they didn't give him much of anything to make – to make Luger himself look good and credible. Uh, with all of the all of the bullshit that surrounded that match, and I thought Booker did a really masterful job of doing that, like of of making a guy who shouldn't shouldn't seem credible credible, while also clearly showing that Booker would be the guy to win the fight. Like I I thought uh, um, I thought we saw shades of the king that Booker would become. Uh, I agree with that. Uh, I, I think uh, you know you got to give props to Booker and a lot of the younger guys uh, like. Uh, Kidman and Vampiro on this episode. Uh, but my 
silver lining is going to be the cameos. Uh, whether we're talking about Lisa Marie Verone or whether we're talking about Christopher Daniels, uh, David Arquette, David Arquette, you know, <laughs> not so much Big Al, uh, no, uh, but yeah, the, the wrestling cameos, uh, it, it, it was good to see some of these faces again. And that's something I, w- I will always say about these nitros. Like that's a silver lining, you know, just seeing Lenny and Lodi in the, in their standards and practices gimmicks, seeing April Hunter, you know, seeing, uh, Kid Romeo, a Kazdam Hayashi, like seeing some of these faces that I haven't thought about in a lot of these cases for a decade or more. It, it was nice seeing these old friends again. God, I gotta say, this is very sophomoric of me, but my favorite was probably that extended dick joke that Arn Anderson got into his promo <laughs> backstage. I, I had to pause. I laughed my fucking ass off. Either they care so little that Arn was able to slip this in, or Arn Anderson is just so terrible with his phrasing that these words came out of his <laughs> mouth in that stream without him thinking about. Uh, so big ups to Arn Anderson and his accidental dick joke. Alex, I, I want to thank you for being here. I want to thank you for suffering through this. I, I didn't know when you were watching the episode, and then suddenly before we started recording, I got a, a series of angry DMs. So I was like, oh, okay, now, now, now he's watching the episode. <laughs> I, I feel like you're sort of giving us uh, a reality check. And I'm curious if you have any advice, any words of wisdom to us as we continue to to go down this dark and dreary road. Do you remember, Nate, when you took Brian on the road trip after his time in the asylum and you and you came by the farm up here? Yes, yes. <laughs> I, I think uh, I think a, a great many of those sorts of herbal remedies might help you in this experience <laughs> as as they certainly helped me. <laughs> no, I am stone cold sober when I watch these episodes. I remember everything for these recaps. <laughs> so, uh, thanks everybody for listening to the show and, and downloading. Uh, thanks again to Brother Greenfield for joining us up here on the on the satellite of hate, uh, as it were. And uh, I'm going to leave us with the words of, of Garbage, uh, a band Greeny mentioned earlier. Uh, and, and they had uh, the title song to The World Is Not Enough, a James Bond flick. And I'm going to paraphrase their thoughts as I send us into the weekend. I feel safe. I feel scared. I feel ready. And yet unprepared. This world championship wrestling is not enough. This world championship wrestling is not enough. No. Nowhere near enough. Keep It 2000 is a live audio wrestling production. Executive produced by John Pollock and edited by Brian Mann. Theme song by Chris Urbanovitz. For more shows, check out liveaudiowrestling.com or subscribe on iTunes. That's why this company's in the damn shape it's in because of bullshit like this. This, this, this.